Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you. We get together for your word. We get to do your will. We get to we get to participate in the um, in the spreading of the gospel and the work of the kingdom and studying your word. Apply it to us. Uh, help help us to get over our, get out of our own way so that the word has its right effect on us this morning. And I just be glorified. Let us let us speak as as high as we can of you through Christ our Lord. Amen. So uh, yeah, we do have I think. Three weeks. We're gonna have next week. We're gonna have two books. So uh, next week, um, uh, Justin and I are gonna split it. We're gonna each take like about a half hour. He's gonna do. I'm gonna. He's gonna do Haggai, and I'm gonna do Zephaniah, I believe. And then there's two weeks left after that, and we'll take our summer break for July and August. So the last week, <clears throat> which will be the uh, the, the 20th, we won't we won't meet on the 25th because that's uh, the the out the outside thing. And that's it. Is that the last Sunday? Okay. So so we'll do. Uh, then we'll have Zechariah and Malachi for the last two weeks. So, anyway, this week is Habakkuk, the pious, perplexed prophet of providence. Okay? The pious, perplexed prophet of providence, I call him. Pious because he remained faithful despite the enemies from within the community of faith and from enemies without. Alright? Habakkuk, yeah. I'm just curious, is there a course for uh, alliterations like that when you guys go through a while? Yeah, that's just, just something I like to do, you know? Yeah. It's a... Um, Habakkuk had a real quest for holiness in his life. It shows up everywhere in the way that he thinks. And of course, that doesn't mean he doesn't he doesn't butt up against the limitations of his understanding and doubt or or um, uh, 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 confusion or or as I said, being perplexed. Right? He was pious. He was perplexed. He's perplexed because what God was about to do left him utterly confused and baffled. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Silence of God, says, A silent heaven is the greatest mystery of our existence. Mm-hmm. A silent heaven is the greatest mystery of our existence. And what Habakkuk has to deal with in here is what we all deal with as well, and that is the problem of evil. That's one of the big things that Habakkuk had to deal with. The problem of evil. Philosophically, this is the single greatest challenge to theism, is the problem of evil. It's easier to overcome in my mind, in my mind, any anyway, materialism, you know, uh, metaphysical naturalism, it's easy to under- overcome all those things because we have not only do we have theology, but we have science on our side, right? But when it comes to the problem of evil, that's a very difficult one. There have been lots of answers given. There's been different attempts to do it. Not all are satisfactory. But Habakkuk had to grapple with the same thing that many people grapple with today. I saw a story in the news the other day of Fox News. The parents were convicted in, in uh, Britain yep. of abusing a 10-month-old child. Over 50 bruises and 27 fractures. And I asked myself, what, 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 could, what could possibly be useful? What could possibly be the, the, the necessity of that level of depravity? Can God not make the statements that He needs to make? Can He not persuade us of evil? Can He not persuade us of sin? Can He not persuade us of all these things without that kind of extreme evil? And that's where our, theist, our atheistic friends and agnostics really have, have a struggle with. And I don't have time, I'm not intending to get entirely into the problem of evil today, because God doesn't resolve it in a sense, in a way that Habakkuk could be satisfied and walk away. None of us could walk away and say, oh, now I understand, well, I'm okay with that now. Right? I mean, could any explanation from God make us be comfortable with that kind of brutality against a 10 month old? Yeah. I'm just reminded of some of the things I've read in history, especially over the last few years, 
the extent of cruelty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people against people, and it, it had nothing to do with co- uh, color and mm-hmm. like that. It was just, I mean, this amazing uh, example of the way uh, those of that were in power oppressed and, yep. and were cruel to those that they were uh, yep. lording it over. Yeah, so many, it's, so it's much. Amazing, and, and it, it's crossed it everywhere. It's not. There's nothing. Certainly there's no is. one group who had a had a corner <coughs> on that. That's right. That's right. And, and Habakkuk got it really in two doses. You get the problem of the evil of Israel, and then the evil of the Chaldeans, whom God summoned as a judgment against evil Israel. We'll, we'll see what's going on with that. And so this whole thing is, is really written in the form of almost a lament psalm. It sounds very much like a lament psalm when you read through this. Again, uh, what, what are some of the things that you've heard people say about evil? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard people sort of use that in any way? as a way to be dismissive of, of, of God. You know what I mean? Well, the, the common complaint is, why does God allow that to happen? Yeah. When he can stop it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. When he can stop it, right? There is that sense of, if God is, is powerful enough to stop this, why doesn't he? And yes? But if we never knew evil, mm-hmm. we wouldn't appreciate the good no. and, the, and the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice of yep. the Lord Jesus. Yep, you're exactly right. We wouldn't. But the retort from some would be, okay, that's fine, but tell me why a, nine, a ten-month-old, why can't God accomplish that without an innocent child being sucked apart in the womb? Or, you know, why, why can't God accomplish His purposes of teaching us the difference between good and evil without such extremes? I'm kind of with you, though, even going all the way with that. It is these extremes that make us sort of cry out that we know. There's just, there's just no way to deny that this is not the way it should be. There's something inherent in our nature that tells us this is not right, Mark. It just seems to me that um, the part in Romans 1 where it talks about it says they have no excuse. They will have mm. no excuse. Right. Um, there won't be any excuses for the kind of things that people do. You're talking about mm-hmm. the, uh, against infants <coughs> and unborn. No, judgment will come. It, in, in, uh, in philosophy... They have ways of putting things in philosophy called syllogisms, right? A syllogism is if this, then that. Okay, it's just it's a, it's a logic argument, and, and, and the argument, the one that was put up by I don't know if you've ever heard of David Hume, but Hume goes back into the Enlightenment era, era, and this is this was basically his argument. He said if God exists and is perfectly good, then He will prevent as much evil as He can without either bringing about a greater evil or preventing a good that outweighs the evil in question. That's the first premise. Second premise, he says, if God exists and is both omniscient and omnipotent, then he can prevent any evil from occurring without bringing about a greater evil or preventing a good that outweighs the evil in question. Number three, there is evil. Conclusion, therefore, God does not exist. Or he is not both omnipotent and omniscient, or is he not perfectly good. So that's flawed human logic. <clears throat> it is flawed human logic, and it's easy to say that, but I would challenge 90% of Christians to be able to argue effectively against that. But... On the other hand, it's not necessary that we overcome that, of course, because they have to explain the same thing too. The problem of evil is a problem for everyone, not just for theists. You've got to give account for it on your, on your worldview as well. And, you know, you, then we can go further and get in the weeds, which I don't want to do. But we have a, 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 very, a very famous verse in this, right? Uh, what, what verse in Habakkuk is echoed throughout the New Testament? Yes. 2-4. Yes, right, and which is? That the righteous will live by faith. Yes, right, my righteous will live by faith, or the just will live by faith, depending on what you have. 
Uh, and you'll find that in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. You'll find it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, which doesn't surprise me because Galatians is kind of a Romans light. <laughs> you know, there's other good things going on, but Galatians is a great... Uh, <clears throat> it just goes really well with Romans. The Talmud, anyone know what the Talmud is? What, what, what's the Talmud? The, the Talmud and the Mishnah, what's the Talmud? Talmud is a book of Jewish commentaries on, on the scriptures and writings from the ancient Jewish, okay? And in the Talmud, it says, the Talmud records the remark of one rabbi that, quote, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. David reduced them to 10, Isaiah to 2, but Habakkuk to 1. The righteous shall live by his faith. <laughs> and Habakkuk reduced it all to 1. I thought that was an interesting comment because that's exactly what Habakkuk does. That's what he is told by God and that's what he lives as well. As... We will see. We don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk, except that his name has more K's than any other name in <laughs> the history of names. <laughs> uh, very little known about him. His name potentially means to wrestle with or to embrace, which he certainly does. He certainly does wrestle with, again, this idea of what, what are you talking about as we get to it. Or at the same time, he means embrace. He does come to just embrace what is true about God? And that's what gets him through all of this, you know, as we'll find out. He knows the character of God. And interesting though, unlike all the other prophets, we never see him prophesying to the people. He's never given God's words to the people. This is strictly a dialogue, really, between Habakkuk and God. So nowhere in here does he say anything to anyone else. Although I have to think that he's expressing the sentiments of some, certainly, right? Um... And some must have said, hey, talk to God for us, will you? Uh, and he may even have been, some say he may even have been like on the temple staff. He may even have been a temple singer, given the song that we see in chapter 3 and, and the way that he goes about knowing. It was part of the job in some places uh, uh, for, for many of the sort of ancients that they were in the service of the temple for people to come and ask them questions that they could give an answer for. When they came and asked him the questions that might have come and asked, he would have a difficult given time giving an answer. Just like if someone would say to you, hey, if God is all good and all-powerful, how is it that he lets an innocent 10-month-old receive 50 bruises and 27 fractures from their parent? How does that happen? If your God is so good, that's a hard thing to overcome. And, and you got to understand, when people say that, they're, they're really testifying to, to evil. They're really testifying to just how much they grasp evil is, right? But at the same time, they're looking for a genuine answer. How can that be? Uh, and yeah, it is, it is our part, it's a part of our nature. Right? In, in, in Habakkuk's question of God is not done in a way that's rude or belligerent. It is a question that comes really from really knowing the nature of God and understanding it, which we'll talk about. Uh, when did Habakkuk minister, or when do we suppose this took place? It was before the fall of Jerusalem and the exile. We know that because, well, we'll read 1.6 in a minute. And sometime between, say, 625 and 575 B.C. We know that God was already raising up the Babylonians. Babylonians and Chaldeans are synonymous, okay? They're the same people. In chapter 1, verse 6, God says, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation. But the point is, he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. It's already going on. So, and we know this, right? We know that the Babylonians, first of all, they trashed uh, Assyria up in the north after Assyria had conquered Israel. And they enjoyed their status for a while. We read about Jonah going and preaching to Nineveh and then Nineveh repented for a little while. But lo and behold, that repentance didn't hold more than, say, a hundred years. And God raised up 
the Babylonians. The Babylonians were even more severe and fierce than the Assyrians. And if you recall what we talked about, the Assyrians, they were a very cruel people. Uh, so, what kind of cruelty does it take to overcome cruelty? Right? Uh, and this, this whole book really is a great example of the hermeneutic key that we've been applying to our study of the Old Testament as we're going through book by book, which is the three, the three keys to our understanding is the God's righteous rule over his kingdom, right? Man's response to God, and then God's response to man's response. We see that taking place throughout this. We see what's going on with, um, you know, God, God, God is Israel part of the kingdom of God on earth to reveal who God is. We see Israel responding to that consistently in idolatry and injustice and all kinds of evil. Now we see God responding to that in the same manner over and over again until finally at last he just wipes it out altogether. Okay? So, great example if you're going to think in terms of how do I understand what's going on in Scripture. Well, again, the Bible is, is all about God's righteous rule of his kingdom. And then we see in that, beginning way back in Genesis, how does man respond to that? And from there, how does God respond to that? All grace, all mercy. Let's take a look in wrath to come as we see. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Mm. And this is going on uh, all over. Okay, and, and, and so, you know, Habakkuk had seen the reforms of Josiah. Josiah had, if you recall, he had um, his, his guy in the temple had come across the book of the law bar to Josiah and said, Hey, man, look what I found. And Josiah opened it up and was like, Whoa! You know, Torah is like, we have gone so far from God. We have defected from God so much. And so he brought in all kinds of reforms, right? He burned down the earth. Just, 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 just amazing reforms. Uh, and then he gets killed uh, by Pharaoh Necho on Pharaoh's way up north to, to fight. Uh, and then on his way back, uh, he establishes uh, Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoahaz became king for three months, uh, uh, Josiah's son. But he got, he got taken by Necho down to Egypt and in his place Necho put Jehoiakim another son of Josiah and we read about Jehoiakim a little bit you don't have to turn there but 2 Kings uh, 36 to 37 uh, what's the chapter uh, I wrote 36 to 37 but I didn't put the chapter down oh, bottom line is it says Josiah, I mean, uh, Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord okay and then in First Chronicles 36, 8, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. And that's the environment that's going on right now. Injustice, the righteous are surrounded by the wicked. What a way to put it. The law is paralyzed, which is having no effect at all. They're just sitting there somewhere. Right? Violence is happening. And he's crying out to God because Habakkuk knows the character of God. So this is a different kind of questioning of God. He's looking to understand why, why all this evil, but he's not doing it in the way the arrogant sort of unbeliever would be, right? 
He knows the character. So he's not looking idly at wrong. He doesn't ignore the fact that the law is paralyzed and that there's injustice and righteousness and, and peril of the wicked. And so Habakkuk knows this about God. And he says, why? Why God? I, I don't get it. Why aren't you doing something? Rise up, oh God! You know, why aren't you doing something about this? And we, you know, in our culture, we can relate to that, right? Can you, I mean, like you, I've gotten to the place many times where I've thought, God, why, how much longer are you going to tolerate abortion? How much longer are you going to tolerate the gender thing and the homosexual pro- It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. As well as, you know, promiscuity and everything in general. But, but Lord, even the you know, one of the major political parties who used to have a concern for exception clauses, you know, and used to say, keep it rare, safe, and legal. How did they get from there to, you kill that, kill that thing? After birth. After birth. How did we get there, Lord? What, I, when are you going to do something about that? Right? And, and he says, why do, you make me, why do you make me see iniquity? Why, why do you have to keep seeing this and beholding this? Spurgeon had a great quote on this and he mentions the following among the reasons for which our God gives us such ability and reason to see iniquity. He says, to confirm us in the doctrines of grace, to keep us humble, to put us on our watchtower, to make us value salvation more, to keep us humble, and that we may be set more earnestly to work, that we may be the means of saving souls and extending the kingdom of righteousness. He lays bare the loathsome kennel of the human heart and lets us look at all our deformity and depravity. He bids us look up with horror upon our natural state and see that awful and hideous corruption that still remains in our hearts even though we be regenerate. That's one good reason why God makes us to see iniquity. Not to be confused with inequity. (laughs) But the prophecy of the Old Testament is even much more difficult than I think us today because Mm. they have the covenants and the promises. Yeah. You know, that they were under, and then they're under this impression that God is going to bless us and yeah. not curse us, and and the curses come true, of course, mm-hmm. in relationship to the blessing and cursings that were promised if you obey and disobey. But still, I mean, um, they had a whole history of that. They didn't just have it written yeah. down in the book; they lived it over yeah. and over again too. Yeah. Um, and yet, this passage also indicates that because God does not appear to be acting against those who act unjust, that the law is ignored. So because judgment doesn't come immediately, fools presume it will never come. Right? There is no God. I'm just reminded of Deuteronomy 32, 35. Uh, Their foot will slip in due time. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously it's in God's hand Mm -hmm. when that time will be. But it's it's, it's pretty final when he does move. Well, this is, as much as I say, you know, the problem of evil is the single greatest problem for theists. It's also the single greatest problem for atheists because they need to be given to explain a reason. How do you account for what's good and bad in your worldview? Where does that possibly come from? You cannot possibly... What, what is good and bad? What is moral and immoral? Not, not, not what particular thing, but where do we get this sense of, of morality as, as we ought to do this or we ought to do that? Where does that come from? So... Um, so Habakkuk uh, is, is just very understandably sort of the way we were, and he's God's prophet, so he's doing exactly what he should be doing. He should be crying out to God and appealing. Now, verse 5, here comes God's answer. Says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, if told. I'm going to do something, I'm doing something, 
there's, there's no place in your mind to grasp this. You have no, you have no category for this. What I'm about to reveal to you doesn't fit. Okay? And so God certainly is not doing nothing. He's been raising up these Chaldeans. God's getting ready to judge. He's been, he's been polishing the sword of his wrath. He's been putting on the cleats to stomp out the grapes of wrath. Right? And it, Paul actually quotes this verse in Acts 13.41 where he's warning the Jews about rejecting the Messiah. Warning that a great tragedy would befall. And of course eventually it did back in 70 AD, right? When Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed it once and for all. And so, God's raising up the Chaldeans, a shockingly immoral and violent people. No one will believe it. It's too contrary to what should be expected. Right? Because we have limits to our knowledge of what God is doing, don't we? we? We just have limits. And I think one of the things about the people of God is um, it, it's a grace to know that there are limits, I think. It's very difficult. It would be very difficult to live thinking that there are things, everything could be understood and solved. In a way, that would do away. In a way, it's, it's a very secular, humanistic mindset that we don't need God to solve our problems, right? And so we almost need to have this. There's almost an, as you were saying, a necessity of evil. It, it does serve a particular purpose. Um, yeah. I think also that when man comes up with a so-called remedy, it often re- results in greater problems. Mm. Uh, you know the. Uh, Unintended consequences is a is a big thing. Uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I got It's a memory verse that hasn't been remembered yet, <laughs> uh, but I, I got to keep this one in mind. It's so relevant today too. It says, "For thou hast Isaiah two six. Mm-hmm. For thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east." Yeah, right. Crazy, huh? And the church, too often, is getting filled with influences from the left. So, this is what these verses say, you know, like up through verse 11, just to summarize them. These Chaldeans, these these, uh, Babylonians, they're bitter, they're violent, they're hasty, they're dreaded, they're fearsome, they're unjust, they're scorners, they're mockers, they're idolaters, and their strength is their God. They worship their own strength. They worship their own might. That's the source of their... That's what they celebrate, is their own power and their own greatness. The horses really are worthy beasts to carry them. You know, they, they talk about the horses. He talks about the horses here. The horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Okay, so this is poetic language, right? So we want to be careful with metaphor and everything because typically horse, you know, a wolf is a predatory animal. Right? And not only is he predatory, but he's a carnivore. Right? Whereas a horse is not a carnivore, he eats hay. But the metaphor is here is you got a much larger beast, much more powerful, and a destroyer. And God uses horses throughout Scripture to carry the riders that are going to become announcing judgment or bringing about. Even Jesus himself, he's going to come riding on that great horse it, it, it talks about. And so these warriors devour and they take captive, they, they, they sack and they, they, they sack fortresses, they leave a wake of carnage and wreckage. The only thing that's ever come close to what I think in Hollywood, uh, these are like 5th century orcs, <laughs> or uruk if you've seen The Lord of the Rings at all. You think of the orcs and the uruk that, that, uh, that Sauron, the, the evil sorcerer, sort of conjured up. 
these sort of mutated uh, orcs that were like half orc, half man, big mighty beasts that were just ruthless. And and you watch that movie, you just see the horrible the horrible things that they did. That's these people. They're 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 just they're they're almost inhuman, right? <laughs> Yeah, Genghis Khan was like that. And so, uh, the, just the things they say, they laugh at every fortress, they sweep like the wind. Guilt these men again, whose own might is their God. And so, so Habakkuk complains to the Lord, and that's the Lord's answer. And, and so in Habakkuk, in the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, you get, you get Habakkuk's stunned response. Are, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So, you know, good things going on here. I mean, in spite of the revelation of what's going to happen, Habakkuk refers to God as he still addresses him as he should, right? Lord, Holy One, God, you know, my rock. So his protest, again, is not a belligerent one. It's based on the conviction that God doesn't tolerate this kind of thing. So why is he tolerating it now? Why is he going to do this? It means there's got to be a better way. A little pestilence, a devouring locust, something. I mean, why is it necessary, Lord? Why do you got to go to this extreme like this? Because they didn't listen to the pestilence and the locust before. And ultimately, God doesn't answer anyway. God doesn't give an answer. Um... And so, so Habakkuk's kind of like, how can this possibly be a response? You, these people are far worse than us. How can that possibly be? I mean, your eyes are, you are of purer eyes than to see evil. And yet you're going to raise up a much greater evil than the evil being done by your people. Uh, again, how long we cry out, oh Lord, will you tolerate abortion and the exploitation of children by homosexual and trans activists, uh, transgender activists, and predators, and human sex trafficking, and a million other things. Well, what if God responded with, Behold, I'm raising up Al-Qaeda. And they will, be, they will behead your fathers and your brothers and your sons, and they will rape your wives, and they'll stone them to death in the streets after they rape them, and, rape them, and then they will convert Gulf, uh, 23 Gulf Street to a terrorist-supported mosque, and they're going to teach your children to hate the Jews and to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And they're going to topple large buildings, and they're going to burn your oil fields, and you'll have no source of heat or energy for the sabotage of the electric grid, and they're going to cut off all internet and social media access. That's what I'm going to do. Well, our response would be, "Whoa, what are you talking about, God? You know what I mean? Social media. I mean, Lord, we're complaining, ah. huh? It's what? Social media. Right, right, exactly. Kind of, kind of Can't throw kind of a little of everything, right? Uh, and in fact, it's an interesting point, Bill, because in our culture, you cannot live without social media. It's now becoming a place where uh, you'll be able to get news that you're not going to get through. Uh, and this is uh, this a little bit of a side road, but you look at like, for example, Tucker Carlson. I mean, this, this, the big me- mass media who are no longer trustworthy. I mean, so it will, yes, become a means of in- accurate information. So, and then and he says in here, it says, uh, he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So, so God is responsible for making his people as easily caught as helpless fish. Just a big net going by and sweeping them up, right? Snared in a net. And th- these, the, the Israelites are just low-hanging fruit for the Chaldeans. 
And Habakkuk wonders why God would allow this to happen when the result is that the Chaldeans rejoice over their catch, as it says this here. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. You know, God, not, not only are you doing this to us, but look at the Chaldeans, they're rejoicing as if something wonderful. And then to make it worse, so God, you're doing this. God, don't you see that they're actually making sacrifices to their net? And they're making offerings to their dragnet, right? For, for, because, because the dragnet, the thing they used to catch the fish, or in this case, the splunder and the, the, the plunder and the spoil and everything they're going to take from Israel, becomes their means of living in luxury and makes them rich. So, not only are they going to live in high off the hog, tough thing to say to Jews, I guess, <laughs> but, but, you know, but they're going to live sort of the, the, the life of Riley here. They're going to have a maiden. They're going to be wealthy at our expense. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I mean, when are you going to do something, God? Israel's idolatry is going to be punished by idolaters. <laughs> well, so we get over there. Uh, I'm sorry, that was the, the second part of chapter uh, 1. And we go over the verse... So he, he says that to God and then he, and then he says, back, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So I'm going to... And he's going to get up high up in that watchtower. In other words, he's just going to pay real careful attention. He's really going to look for God's answer because I want to know then how to respond back to God. I want to get his answer. Um, I'm going to get my phone ready here because my computer is... Low on, um, unless I plug it in and move this over to the wall, which I don't want to do. Let me just bring up my. Uh, do you have an extension cord here? Do we? Yeah, I suppose I could just sort of plug it in there and stand over there because I am going to run out of battery. It's a stupid thing. I had it on the charger for like three hours this morning. I think the problem is the technology in this compu- particular computer is four years old now, so that's almost obsolete in computer language. Um, I didn't get to take my. I didn't get to take my. Uh, I, I my iPad. My iPad, which I left at work. So anyway, I'm just gonna slide this over here. Thanks. Just because I have to get some of those papyrus sheets. <laughs> it's still, it's still hard to find. Here we go. Sorry, guys. Sorry to disrupt the class like that, but it's for a good reason. Bill Gates. To blame. So, um, so he's gonna he's gonna wait and hear that answer from God. It's just you know we should look. You well, know. God's gonna give him a vision, and he's to write it on tablets large enough. He says, okay. God says, write the vision, so he may run who reads it. For the, the vision awaits still its point in time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. I'll wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Okay. So God says, look. First of all, he says, write it on a tablet, write it large enough so that somebody running by can see it. <laughs> this is like a billboard. This is what I want you to see. This is the vision. I'm going to bring Babylon down eventually. It will come. Just wait and see. It will come. And he's also going to give him another vision too about the greatness of God. But in, in, in there's two types of responses to this. So even if he puts it up there large enough for everyone to see, that's the point of it, right? And, so, and somehow this is communicated to God's people, writing it on the tablets, you got verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So there's, there's always two types of responses to God's revelation. The puffed up unrighteous, 
and the righteous who live by faith until the fulfillment, trusting in God. Right? Hebrews 10, uh, 36 to 38. We read, <clears throat> For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done all the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. He shows up again there in Hebrews. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Well, the ones that shrink back, really, the ones that are puffed up and the ones that are unrighteous. And so, then God announces in this, to be written down, this series of five woes against the Babylonians and Chaldeans. Okay? And again, these, and this is, this is not just for them. I mean, it's written about them at that time, but the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're sort of an archetype of all those through history that oppose the kingdom of God. Okay, this is what awaits. And we get a series of metaphors that really point to the whole principle of sowing and reaping, right? Scripture says you sow to the flesh, then you're going to reap from the flesh as well. And so, there's different things here that God points out. There's, there's, there's a couple of things they're doing that... that um, the economics, the way that they're acting, slave labor, there's abuse of alcohol, there's drunkenness and debauchery and, and sex and everything else while the people are suffering and of course their idolatry. So God, again, the sowing and reaping principle, we can read through all the verses here, but just to sum it up, they will become indebted to their debtors. They will be despoiled by those who they despoiled. They have plundered and they will be plundered. Uh, the very physical elements of the building they trashed will cry out against them. Right? Because he says here, um, Woe to him who builds a town with blood in a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? Oh, sorry, that's the wrong verse. That's the one I want. Um, I believe I lost that verse. Anyway, the verse, you find it in there and read through it. I just want to make sure I get to everything. The verse that talks about the building, like that the, basically the building materials crying out against them. Um, 11. Is that where it is? 11, thanks. For the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodworks will respond. Um, then verse, again, verse 14, right in the midst of the woes. So you get some woes here. You're going to have some woes after. And then we hear this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. That's why God is going to do this. I am going to, I'm going to wrath, I'm going to bring about my wrath, I'm going to bring about this thing to the Chaldeans, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this to Israel. Why? Because the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas. You will know it. You will see it. And that's, God's going to frustrate completely the efforts of the godless. He's, he's going to go, uh, when he says in 13 woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity behold it's not from the, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations wear themselves for nothing why, do they, why does God bring judgment because people that do that outside of knowing him must know and must see as must his people that the glory of the, of the Lord will cover the, the, the whole land like the seas I mean eventually the glory of God is going to be everywhere it's not going to be hidden it's not going to be in shadows. It's not going to be in tight. It's going to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. Always constant exposure to the glory of God. And how that's going to just continue to, mm-hmm. to bring us, that's the fuel to just keep us going through all eternity. It's the glory of God. <coughs> and then there's some, 
More woes, and God's challenging the idolaters, right? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. All right? But, but, verse 20, word of contrast. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But the idolaters, it's the gods that are silent. (laughs) And the idolaters are making all the noise. With God, it's God that is the one that is proclaiming and declaring. And the people are to just keep silent before him. So an amazing contrast there. And then we come again to Habakkuk's prayer and response to God's revealing all of this. And Habakkuk really is the whole chapter, although verse 1 and 2 is sort of like the prayer properly speaking, and then the rest is, is Habakkuk sort of reciting this vision of a theophany he gets, right? The appearance of God in striking metaphor. And so he says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagayanath. And that just that term is... Uh, the meaning that seems to best fit the context is that it's like a song or a psalm that's charged with emotion and excitement. Okay, and so and that should tell you. It tells you that for a reason. I mean, that's instruction to the musicians and the singers when they're going through these psalms. Because remember, these weren't just written once and put aside. These were sung all the time in the Jewish uh, culture and, and the cult of worship that they had. And so, how do you read such a t- uh, psalm? You know, it's not a monotone and bland. Like, you know, this had instruments set to it. This has, you know. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, what, you know, <laughs> what joy shall fill my heart, right? No. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, we sing things a certain way, right? We, we don't just sit there and, and when you read Scripture, let it scream to you the way that it's intended. You know what I mean? This thing is moving. Uh, why? Because, because God's showing up. Right? Habakkuk knows in the past he says, I've heard of the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of you, he says, revive it. Revive it. Well, Habakkuk knows in the past how God has shown up and conquered evil, right? When, when evil has been perpetrated against the people of, his, of his, uh, the apple of his eye, in spite of the things they've done. And how God has shown covenant mercy to his people in the past. So you, you think of the song of Moses upon their deliverance through the waters. You think of the song of Deborah after the, after the victory that was, that was accomplished there when, oh, what's his name, took a, took a peg through the temple. <laughs> you think of all that, that, that... These are songs that were sung in there, various psalms, other psalms as well, that celebrate the victory of God, right? When God comes down to confront evil, people will know it. This isn't going to happen in secret. It's not going to be missed. Okay, he comes down from a mountain. He says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. I mean, we've talked about this before in other contexts. The gods in ancient thought were always up in the mountains. And certainly God was, Eden was up on a mountain. God's going to come down from that mountain. He came down onto Sinai, right? He came down, (coughs) transfigured on the mount in, in the New Testament. And so you get these incredible descriptions here. You get these in the book of Revelation as well, something very similar. You get bright light flashes and pestilence and earthquakes and waters divided and the sun and the moon stand still and there's fury and there's a glittering glittering spear and there's arrows and there's trampling the sea with his horses. All of this theophany, all this great appearance of God in the way that Habakkuk describes him here. And why? Why does God do this? Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. 
for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah, right? This, oh, good place to take a pause. God did it. Right? That Selah is just pause. It's just a, just stop think about that for a second. God accomplishing all that. That's what God's going to do. Creation trembles, right? Creation trembles. Our God is a consuming fire. And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, no, Habakkuk. God is not ignoring evil at all. He's showing us how he deals with it here. And then he's going to show how he... We can continue... We can know that God is going to continue in the same pattern. The book of Revelation points to that in various ways, regardless of how you interpret the book of Revelation, whether you think it's something that's going to happen in a thousand years, when, when there's a thousand year literal reign of Christ on earth, whether you believe it's that you're an amillennialist and you believe that the thousand years is sort of uh, allegorical or a metaphor for the current reign of Christ through the gospel, or you think of preacher, whatever your situation is, wherever you fall on that eschatological continuum, God acts in the book of Revelation. He brings about pestilence. He brings about death. He brings about destruction. He destroys. Right? He, he, he tramples out the grapes of wrath. Why wouldn't he? When people deny and ignore what happened on the cross. I mean, all of this still doesn't measure up to what we see happening on the cross. Right? I mean, that's God in human flesh. God bled. God crucified. God Naked, God exposed, God getting eaten by bugs and parasites getting into his wounded flesh and birds landing on him and trying to peck at his eyes and all the stuff that happened to crucified bodies. That's horrible. That's the God who says, you can have this happen or you can look to me and see how I bore this in my own body on the tree, right? Crazy. And... That's as close as we can come. That graphic, horrible scene on the cross. To understanding what the wrath and grace of God is like. So, then we get to verses 16 to 19 and we see a just man living by faith. Right? A just man living by faith. Let's read it. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And your translations may be a little different there. NIV is slightly different. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Again, to the choir master with stringed instruments, because it was performed. And so, Habakkuk is so affected by what he has come to understand that his lip quivers. He, uh, this tells us Habakkuk understands what's about to happen. His lip quivers and his knees are weak. He can barely walk. I remember when my father was dying. He had a stroke on a Friday and we were in the hospital on Saturday or Sunday and it became inevitable and they let me know to my mother that, that he was going to die. And my mother just collapsed 
in the foyer of the hospital and just wailed. She, she, she just couldn't even... She had no strength in her at all to stand. It just took took life from her. I mean, this is where... This is what Habakkuk knows he's waiting on. Okay? His teeth are chattering. <laughs> my rottenness has entered my bones. My skeletal support has lost its ability to hold me up. I just... But I will wait for God's deliverance. Even in, in that state. And he says... Oh, the fig tree does not blossom. You know, the fig tree is the first fruit tree mentioned in the Bible, and it was also a symbol of safety and prosperity. Okay? So, for there to be no blossom was therefore quite terrible. That symbol of peace and security and safety is gone. Interestingly, Jesus used the fig tree, which did not blossom, yield its blossom, to teach about the failure of Israel to be what he called her to be, if you recall. The very thing we see going on here. And then, the olive oil. You know, Matthew Henry said that the olive oil was to the Israelites what butter is to us. So no butter. <laughs> Take me now, Lord. <laughs> no real stick of 100% pure butter. Not, not margarine and, and, and you can't, I can't believe it's not butter. No, the healthy trans fats and butter that we all need. Forget about that other junk you learn about other forms of butter. Throw it away and eat real butter. Unless you have a you know, condition that you can't. Eat that real butter. No butter. But was it not also possible that Habakkuk was aware, I thought of this, of the implications this had for worship, right? Olive oil, after all, was what was used to light the menorah in the tabernacle, right? It, it was also used to prepare cakes, which was a common food mentioned in the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Peace offerings was part of the everyday life of the Israelites. So oil was used in many of those sacrifices and represented joy and gladness, Right? It, it, it indicated fellowship, right? Brother Gary's, one of his favorite verses in, 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 in the Psalms is like oil running off. Yeah. Yeah. Oil running down. Like, you know, when, when brothers dwell together in unity, it's like, it's like oil. Like the oil of one. It's like the dew of Ramon. It's like oil running down the beard of Aaron. <laughs> Olive oil was used to anoint kings. It had a, medis- a medicinal usage. It had cosmetic uses. It was used for lamps in every home. So, so there's that. And so, no harvest of grain, no grapes, no wine for the libation offering. This was an entirely agricultural culture, right? By which one's entire living was sustained. And the fruits of which were critical to worship practices. So as prophet, and perhaps even priest, Habakkuk knew the importance of these things. No cattle and no sheep. How important are these things to their daily lives and worship? The sacrificial system of blood hangs in the balance here. No atonement for sin? The first fruits of agriculture, the firstborn of the flocks, the burnt offerings, all of this under threat of being gone. Imagine being told, no more building for church to meet in. No more money to offer God for His work. No more camp impact. No more of the things we depend on for our Christian experience and community. Well, all the things that have shaped the covenant community and supported it in Habakkuk's day were soon to be gone. The fabric into which their being was sown is about to be torn asunder. Mm. So it's more than just not having food in certain things, right? You know, you'll recall, uh, actually, I preached a sermon on this years ago called Dahu Dohe's Faith. Uh, you'll recall, perhaps, from the Grinch who stole Christmas, mm-hmm. right? So, so the Grinch, he took everything that the Who's in Whoville could possibly need for their Christmas celebration. Because he hated Christmas, right? And he wanted it to come to an end. 
But despite his best efforts, and I'm not comparing God to the Grinch, you see, despite his ef- best efforts, and he took absolutely everything meaningful, they gathered around the tree in the morning and they sang this song of rejoicing as they had every year. Fahu Forhez, Dahu Dorhez, welcome Christmas, come this way. Fahu Forhez, Dahu Dorhez, welcome Christmas, Christmas Day, right? And the Grinch was just shocked at this. He, he, right, was, he exclaimed at the service, he said, how could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. This is what we see going on in Habakkuk, right? This is what we see going on in Habakkuk. doesn't matter about all those things. You know, they had, uh, they had the sort of, all the material things of their faith while they had those material things, the oil, the sheep, and all that. Everything that God gave them for their life. They had all the material things, but they did not have God. They did not have God. They did not have the substance of their faith. This, this ending here is basically, take the world, but give me Jesus' faith. Right? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. And that is, that, the, the, um, the, the just shall live by faith, the problem, all these things, this is what the book of Habakkuk is all about. And our takeaway is just the things we've been talking about. Things could get crazy. Things could get barren. Things could go, you know, in a certain sense, when we had, like COVID, for example, we would deny gathering. We would deny worship and that kind of thing. We did what we had to do to, to get by, right? That's, that's just a minor scale compared to what was going to happen here. Um, but if God is at, and if we understand who God is, we may have these questions. And there's nothing wrong with approaching God with these questions. They're questions that are based on God's character. And, and again, we don't, God never gives a reason why. He doesn't, he doesn't really answer Habakkuk. He said, after I do this to Israel, I'm going to destroy the destroyers as well. And then he, he didn't, give him, didn't give him a reason. He didn't give him an explanation to solve the problem of evil. What did he do? He revealed himself fully. He gave a full revelation. He gave a, that classic revelation of God coming out to act for his covenant people. That was his answer. How could you do that, Lord? How could you possibly do this? God doesn't answer that question. He says, here I am. And so you get the mighty visions of God doing all that He does. All the great things that we see in Psalms of God riding on the mighty waters. Those things may not seem quite as meaningful to us as they did the psalmist. Of course, if we meditate them on their will, we don't. But all of the, all of the sort of metaphor that was in that ancient mind when they thought about theophany, when they thought about God, how does God show up and what is it like when He does and what happens when He does, that was God's answer. That was God's answer to the problem of you. And the problem that counted Habakkuk encountered. It says, Here I am. We're gonna unless anyone has a comment, we're just gonna close a little bit early today because we're gonna meet I'm gonna meet somebody up in uh, up at the church before before church today. So any last final thoughts, words? Alright. Well I hope you have um, I hope we all can have uh, up at church here a, a kind of Habakkuk vision of God when we hear the word preached and hear the music sung, right? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, your word, what you inspired by your spirit for all ages, for our comfort, for our understanding, for our knowledge. And we can seek no greater answer, though we ask, though we struggle. When we come to you in difficulty, Lord, we have hope based on this and in other places that you will reveal yourself. And that will become greater. Just seeing you. Will 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 again make the things of this world grow strangely strangely dim, 
in the light of your glory and grace. Guide us and protect us now through Jesus Christ our Lord to your glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.